what's expected of him, what the Lord would ask of him for us in this house, but also to get to know his heart. That's what's so wonderful about the setting of tabernacles. When you read Leviticus 23, it says, your foreigners, your slaves, everyone was invited. Everyone was to come to these in gatherings. And it mean you had to be qualified. It doesn't mean that you know them. God was saying, I want you to come. And so in turn, for those of you that have experienced a time of tabernacles, we don't tell any of the speakers what to say or how to say it, what they can say or what they can't say. Go on. And often people will ask, well, what should I be speaking on? What would you like me to speak on? And we essentially say the Lord has it inside of you and we'll hear it when we see you. Okay? And so I just want you to be encouraged. I mean, we have Christine where she saw through a dream in 2014, August, another things, a number of things that were fulfilled. Well, you know, Jesus, according to the word, everything concerning him had to be fulfilled. Correct? In John 14, it says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them. Do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So if we've been sent into the world, as Jesus was sent into the world, then the scriptures must be fulfilled about whom? Us. Us. So, interesting enough, Steve is asking how you found out about me. How did we find out about him? Well, for those that were here two tabernacles ago, Cal Pierce had come, and then there was a regional conference down in Brattleboro, right? We picked up the brochure. Kathy asked the woman at the table, do you know this person? Can you tell me about it? She just said, the guy's just absolutely wonderful, and you need to have him come. This was two years ago. We considered, we brought it before the elders of having him come, and it wasn't an open door to do it. So this year, we invited him. So he comes. Was it third grade through sixth grade? Yes. Steve <laughs> lived in Brattleboro. Now lives in San Francisco. By coincidence? Yeah, right. <laughs> no. no. By appointment. Amen. For us. Amen. So I want you just to receive... Christ and Steve. We had just a wonderful, unfortunately it wasn't a long enough time, but it was a wonderful time because as I told him, even when the prophets come, we don't talk about you. We don't talk about what God is doing. We don't talk about the food bank. We don't talk about the increases. We don't talk about the things that God is showing us. It's not until after they have spoken do we then affirm because then they know they're hearing from God. And then you can trust both the leadership and also those that come because it's not familiarity. It's not made emulation. Get the people to do this. Get the people to do that. They have these problems. They have that problems. Do something about it. Teach on the offering. Amen. Or teach on the offering. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Many times. Amen. Yeah. And see, as we continue to see, as the scriptures were written about your family, people. The word speaks about an everlasting gospel that has not yet been written, but will be written. Could we be those that might be written about? Think about it, Samir. So what's important is, is when we come together, your testimonies, the expression of dance. Now we could send the whole dance team to dance school, right? 
Not all dance the same, look the same, act the same. This is the life. This is the body. This is the family that God has brought to you, to us. Was it not beautiful? That's the life expression of this family. Amen. And what I think is so wonderful about it is that Steve now has been now welcomed and invited into the family. Because he's part of the greater family, but now he's coming to know the intimacy of this family. So I bless you, Steve. Thank you for being willing to come. Because I really believe it was more than obedience. Oh, yes. Just sensing and talking to you. I know you're a man who responds in obedience. But there was something that I, as we expressed to him, God always brings those for us. There's also something for them. Amen. So, Steve, would you please? I don't know a whole lot about your history. Stephen Deal. It's D-I-E-L, but it's German. So don't say dial. It's Deal. Let's make a deal. That's it. Okay. (laughs) Matter of fact, I think when I was in elementary school in Brattleboro, it was Deal, Deal, Banana Peel, stuck his head in the garbage pail. It doesn't really rhyme, but that's the best they could do. And today that would be what? Bullying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do find it fascinating, amazing, miraculous that you found me in Brattleboro, a place I lived 47 years ago. I did live in West Springfield, Massachusetts for a couple of years before that. This might be a little loud. Yes, thank you. Um, I was born in Iowa. One year later, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. My dad transferred out to Brattleboro, Vermont. Family came out here. Then, uh, or to Massachusetts, excuse me, then to Brattleboro. Then he took a new job with Shell Chemical Company. We went to, uh, finished sixth grade in Pennsylvania. And then Shell Chemical moved his whole division out to California. So that's how I got to California. And I've only got to be back here a few times since then, though all my mother's relatives are in New York. She was born and raised New York City girl, Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn. So all my cousins and aunts and uncles are out on Long Island. So this is a place where I remember and almost consider home. Matter of fact, there's elements of California I love and elements I I still can't get over creeks drying up in the summer that don't have fish in them all year round. Well, what in the world is going on? We just don't have rain. And I love the seasons and I love the, this is the most beautiful weather. I love rainy, cool weather like this. So thank you. And I... And I am eagerly anticipating what God's going to do between us and in you and in me and in us together because this is a divine connection. I don't think Brattleboro's a coincidence. That, that, that just, uh, that's going to be something I remember the rest of my life, maybe for, probably forever. How in the world did you find me in Brattleboro? I don't even know who brought the stuff there. Because most of my ministry is still on the West Coast and on the other side of the Pacific. So only twice has anyone on the East Coast or anywhere between the West and East Coast have invited me out to minister. And the other two times were 15 years ago, both in North Carolina. So I'm hoping God opens up a whole, is opening up a whole new opportunity here. Um, I served as the full-time pastor of my church in Walnut Creek, California for 20 years. The last 10 years, I've just been a volunteer pastor there because I do forgiveness ministries full-time. And uh, when I was full-time pastor, I would tell my congregation that at least 
twice a year, I don't want to see you here on a Sunday morning. I want you to go to another church with other Christians, preferably not like us. I mean, people who dress differently, have different color skin, maybe different language, but they love Jesus. I want you to have that experience because I've had that on the mission field and things. And I knew it would be good for them because if they experience something good of Jesus in another flavor, they would bring it back to our church and we would be able to benefit from it. And if they went to another church and had a real bad experience, they'd be so glad to come back to this church. So it was a win-win situation no matter what. But for those 20 years, I did not get to do that because they kind of expected me there every Sunday. Now, the ministry I have, I get to do that. I get to travel and, and meet new brothers and sisters. And um, to let you a little bit know a little bit more about myself, my degree is actually in biology. I'm an environmental biologist. Um, someone once said to me, oh, so you used to be a biologist. And I, really, I snapped back. What do you mean used to be? I'm still a biologist. I think like a biologist. I love biology. I love camping. love the outdoors. Um, but that's my degree. That's how I think. You're going to see that in my teaching. I like to explain how things work so that you can participate in them. And uh, I thought, though, that when I became pastor of Walnut Creek Friends, I would just be there forever, and I didn't have that opportunity to visit. But now I'm realizing this is such a tremendous opportunity, and, and I, I hope you're visiting other Christian churches, too. And if you have an opportunity to do missions, do that. I mean, even if it's to the inner city, even if, again, just to other denominations of different races, different creeds, different political backgrounds, different, because this is what I believe. We're going to be with each other. If you belong to Christ and I belong to Christ, we're going to be with each other for how long? Yes, forever. Forever. Now let's think about this. Forever, forever, which means even if there are 2 billion or 3 billion people living on the new earth who love Jesus, forever is enough time for us to get to know each other and someday become best friends. I mean, someday you're going to become best friends with every other Christian in the kingdom. So we get to start tonight. So... I just think that's exciting, and I love your heart, what you shared with me today about how you understand that life is all about love, and love is what life is all about. Where there is life, there will be love. Where there is love, people are experiencing life. If there is no love, then life's not happening. And Jesus makes life happen because he makes love happen. And that has to always be in front of us. So I thought that I would, well, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself. Um, married 35 years, six kids, three boys, three girls, 32 down to 20. Three of my kids are married, um, four and a half grandchildren, four and under, three and under. The next one's due in December, that's the half, so just a few months away. Matter of fact, the lady who was singing in Portuguese, she looks so much like my oldest daughter, Nicole, so I thought, okay. Um, but some things happened in my life um, that changed my ministry. You never know what God's going to do with you, right? He just takes you one step at a time. I thought I'd be serving as pastor and retiring at Walnut Creek Friends uh, in my old, old age. But um, he had set me up 
probably even before I was a Christian, before I was born, to be focused on forgiveness. And And maybe one of the first clear in my life, when I look back and go, how did you get into focusing on biblical forgiveness so much, was a dream. So I'll share a dream that I had. Was the young lady who was sharing her dream. Very good. I had a dream. And it was two weeks before I formally became as, began as full-time pastor. A friend of mine had asked me that day, are you scared about becoming pastor? I was leaving work at a, a chemical plant and now becoming... I, had, I was an elder of our church. I was a worship leader. I, my wife and I led the small groups for uh, married couples. I mean... And I said, no, I, I've done all this. I've even preached uh, every four weeks for two years. Um, I just don't have to go to work at Dow Chemical anymore. That night I had a dream that actually scared me terribly. And it was very unusual, and I'll explain it to you, because it was scary in an unexpected way. At that time in my life, I was very accustomed to having what I would call action dreams, like action movies where people are always running around chasing or being chased and getting shot at. And And being a biologist, if you have those kind of dreams, it means there's giant animals, giant snakes, there's dinosaurs. You're being, it's not always by people. It's just, you know, you're just always running from something or chasing something. And I remember one dream, I was looking out behind a tree and an arrow went through my neck all the way through. I remember one time going into a, yeah, I'm disturbed. At least I was. (laughs) I was a very broken person. I remember going into a restaurant in my dream and a guy pulled out a rifle like this close and started shooting into my upper chest and neck like seven times. And I fell on the ground in my dream and thought, nobody can live through this. I'm dead. Oh, wait, this is a dream. And jumped right back up, just like a Hollywood movie. And these dreams never caused any emotional response. No fear no tenseness. I'd wake up and say, hey, Becky, guess what I dreamed about? Big T-Rex was chasing me, finally caught me, bit me in half, but I'm here. (laughs) This dream was different. In that dream, I was in my church building on a Sunday morning behind the pulpit, which I almost never use anymore. And our room holds about 200 people, and it was full, which is not normal. We have a small church. Um, And I could recognize a lot of the people, but most of the people I didn't. And everyone looked very nice, just like you, very polite, just like you, well-dressed, just like you, all attentive. And apparently in my dream, I was about to bring the message, so everyone was looking. And I inhaled as if I was about to say the first sentence of the first word of whatever message I was going to be sharing. And I didn't see two hands, but the only way to describe it, it was as if two giant hands came into the picture and everything I was looking at was like curtains and the hands pulled the curtains apart so that I no longer saw the building, the floor, even the pulpit or the people sitting in the pews. We actually at that time had purple carpet and orange pews. I don't know what they... Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking in the 60s. It might have been drugs, um, but anyway. So these hands, the, the curtain gets pulled apart, and all that I can see behind the curtain is total darkness. And the curtain, the picture got pulled back so far that there was no margin. So it was as if I went totally blind, complete blackness. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone on 
one of those cave trips where they take you deep down into the ground where there is no light. Because you almost ne- there's always light on the surface. Stars somewhere, city lights. There's just ambient light everywhere. You go into one of these caves and they'll say, hold on to something because you're probably going to get dizzy. I'm going to turn off all the lights and show you total darkness. And that's like what my dream was, where you can put your hand in your face and see nothing. can't see anything move. That's how dark this was. And you might think, well, that's what scared him. No. What scared me was the sound that I heard. And given what you shared with me today, wait, Dave, right? Given with what you shared with me today, a Marine once told me he heard this sound. Maybe you've heard this sound. I've never heard it in real life. There are people who have heard this sound. It was the sound of hundreds of people who were so badly injured They were screaming for help. They were groaning as if they were about to die. They were crying. You heard that on the battlefield? And it was hundreds. It was was as if a bomb had gone off in my room and all that 200 people were just agonizing in pain. It was the most horrific sound I have ever heard in my life. That's what scared me. And as soon as I was aware of what I was hearing and felt all that horror and fear, the picture came back together and everyone's sitting there, just like you, as if nothing had happened. And I woke up. I was shocked out of my sleep. I'm 28 years old, a grown man, pretty much in control of my emotions, but I could not move. I was paralyzed in bed. Becky was sleeping on this side of me. I was laying there in the dark, not so dark anymore because there's lights coming in the windows and stuff. And, but I could not move, and I was trembling, and I was sweating, and I could not get out of bed. And I thought, I've got to get up. I've got to move around. I gotta ch-. And all, but all I could do was hear this sound. I kept, I kept seeing the people's faces before and after, and they all looked nice. But that sound, that horrific, terrible, traumatic sound was devastating. And because I couldn't move and I was thinking, I started to pray the atheist kind of prayers, you know, those instinctive, oh, God, help me prayers. I I really, you know, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? Because when you're in trouble, everyone goes, oh, God, help me. And that's kind of what I did. I, I literally said, oh, Lord, what do I do with that? Expecting no answer. Because I really didn't, wasn't even planning on praying. It was just desperation. And I heard God say to me, not audibly, but in my thoughts, I heard him say this. That is what you're going to have to deal with as a pastor. And then he said this, and if you don't, your ministry will amount to nothing. The next day I shared the dream with Becky and talked to a few of my friends and told them the dream. And of course, we didn't need to go find Joseph to, to understand the mystery of this dream. It wasn't that mysterious. The message was simply this. People can look really good on the outside and on the inside be dying. And notice where the dream took place. It wasn't in Times Square. It wasn't in a bar. It was where? And in my church, with my family, with my friends, 
people I had known for years. It was Christians that people can look really good on the outside and on the inside be screaming and crying and moaning, wondering if they're going to survive. Now, at that time in my life, and I'm going to talk about coping mechanisms later tonight and give you an opportunity to discover yours I had learned long before I was 28, especially as a man in the United States, to shut down all my emotions. That was just the safe way to live. Ladies, that's why we do that. You just, you just shut down your emotions if you don't feel it. I mean, you can take drugs or alcohol to do it, or you just learn to suppress all your emotions and go through. I see some heads nodding, right? We can do that. Problem is, you shut down the bad emotions. You also simultaneously shut down all the good ones. So my emotional life was kind of like this which doesn't make you a very good husband when your wife is doing this and you can't ride the roller coaster with her, which is what the women want, is come on the roller coaster with me. Don't fix the roller coaster, just ride it with me. I need a partner, someone who's going to tell me it's going to be okay. Come on, let's put our hands up and do this together. And, you know, she's doing this and I'm doing this and I'm trying to fix her problems. It also didn't make me a very good husband. I wasn't a bad, excuse me, a, a very good father. I wasn't a bad father. I didn't beat my children or anything like that. But again, children, I don't know if you've noticed this, especially young children, think and act and feel much more like women than they do like men. It's not until boys hit puberty that they start going, ah, those emotions don't need I've got to grow up. They tell me to stop crying. If you see me crying, you're going to beat me up, so i just got to shut this all down. Um, so being close to my own children became a problem. I couldn't have emotional communion with my wife. I couldn't have emotional communion with my children. I couldn't have emotional communion with God. It was affecting all my relationships. And I was struggling with all of that. But God showed me, you're going to have to enter into the broken excruciatingly painful world of humanity if you want to minister to people. Which is what God has done. Entered into the excruciatingly painful reality of humanity and all of our sin. Not his sin, our sin. And he feels it. He feels it more intensely, more acutely than we do. But most of us were never taught that. Matter of fact, I only learned just a few months ago reading a history of Christian theology that the early Christian church, because of Greek philosophical thinking of the day, believed that whatever being was perfect could not be changed. And if, if he could be changed emotionally, then he wouldn't be perfect. So the early church went unchallenged in believing God, our God, doesn't have emotions. That's actually lasted all the way up to about the last 50 years. Only in about the last 50 years, people have started to say, hey, God feels sorrow. God feels, well, we all know God feels angry. Everyone, he's the angry God. Especially the Old Testament God, right? He's the angry God. But the, the, the empathy that God is able to give to anyone and everyone who is hurting, because he feels our pain. He feels our anger. He feels our shame. He feels, he just, when we talk about God being all-knowing, 
in the West, we think of knowing as only being information. So we think God knows all the facts. He knows all the information. But all knowing, in the Hebrew word of knowing, it means to have personal, intimate experience. It's actually their word for sexual intercourse. To know a woman is to have sexual intercourse with her. We never use that in our Western world. We talk about knowing as information management, and if you can put the right information down on the test, I'll give you an A, and therefore you know it. That's not how Jesus thought. That's not how God thinks. That's not how all of Asia even thinks. Asians talk about relationships. So this, this knowing of emotions or God being all-knowing means he not only knows the facts, he also feels everything that's going on. People ask me, how does a loving God let all this suffering go on? Well, first of all, he feels it all because people who ask that question are making an assumption. He lets it go on without feeling it. It's not affecting him. No, it is affecting him. He feels all the pain of the world more intensely than any human being does. We only feel the pain in our small circle. He feels the pain of the whole universe simultaneously for all of time. Try to put those shoes on and see if you can survive it. I didn't know that. I had to grow into that. My wife, I wish she would, could be here. Her name's Becky. She would talk about training me to be empathetic. <laughs> you women would love it. Training me to shop also. She trained me to shop. I didn't know she trained me to shop until I was standing next to her in a marriage seminar listening to her teach men and women about how she trained me to shop. And I go... <laughs> I don't believe it. She did train me to shop, and I was even unaware of it till now. The next day I asked her in bed, so what else have you trained me to do? And she smiled and said, I can't tell you or I'd have to kill you for the sake of my time. My time. <laughs> so I really started in a hole, actually, learning about forgiveness. I didn't come from a, a broken home, no divorce, no drugs, no alcohol, no beatings, not, no neglect. I mean, my, my mom's biggest sin was actually, I believe, not being a Christian and building her world around her children and being very overprotective, which is why I became very independent and don't touch me, I'm going to leave me alone. My dad, on the other hand, like so many men of his generation, I think he was a Christian, but it was hard to tell. I mean, an ultra nice guy. He is a Christian. What I see him doing... He's, he's 83 years old, and he works half a day at the church, half a day delivering meals to, to old people. He, he's just always, he works at the hospital one day. He's just always giving, always. He's got the gift of service. He just is the greatest. But from junior high on, he stopped saying, I love you to me. Which most people, I can hear them, mm, the women are doing that, not the men. Men are going, so? What's your point? Your dad stopped saying. I actually remember the last time my dad said I love you before we started up again, and I had to start it in our, my early 20s, was in junior high school. We were already in California, and my uncle from New York, from Germany, had come, and he saw me come out in seventh grade, hug, kiss my dad, and say goodnight. And he looked at us and laughed at us and kind of ridiculed us and said, what are you guys doing? Men don't kiss each other. That was the last time I kissed my dad to this day. Last time my dad said, I think I love you to me. And I wasn't going to venture saying, oh, it's not that he didn't love me, but he, it was just too vulnerable, too risky to do that. Now you might say, that's not, that's not, it, 
that's not a big sin. And it's not, not compared to abuse and neglect and the uh, uh, sexual abuse and the terrible things so many people go through. But if Jesus were a dad, would he say, I love you to his son, teenage boys? Oh, yeah. How often? Probably every day, most days, several times. Whenever people don't act like Jesus, guess what they're doing? Sinning. Jesus is the standard. He never sins. He loves God perfectly with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He loves his neighbor as himself. Never did the wrong thing. Always did the loving thing. Always got crucified for it. Always did the loving thing. That's going to be helpful two nights from now when I help you to learn how to forgive the people who have sinned against you or how to identify your own sins. Whenever you're not acting in love, you're sinning. Whenever someone is not acting in love towards you, they're sinning. And what I really want to focus on tonight is the destructive power of sin to change lives in the wrong direction. I saw the chrysalis and the butterfly up here. I know the heart of your leaders here and how they understand God's goal in the gospel of Jesus Christ is about life transformation, about becoming like Jesus, not by our own power and energy. We can't do that any more than a caterpillar can fly. Caterpillars will never fly. They have to become butterflies to fly. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ and our believing in him and trusting in him and walking with him in community and learning and growing and being healed, God actually takes us who are caterpillars and turns us into butterflies and then we start flying like Jesus flies. But that's a process. You become a Christian through faith in him and it's an event. You are transformed over time. And that's the rest of your life, by the way. That's the whole rest of your life. It's not done until after we die. But what I didn't know at that time in my life was this destructive power of sin to actually cripple the function of the human soul. And I teach forgiveness and have written books and, and do these seminars wherever I'm invited. And I've, I've got 60 Christian books on forgiveness, and I don't hear anyone talking this way. Now, I'm not saying no one is. I'm just not hearing it in the books and materials and the sermons on TV and radio to talk about the human soul not just being in pain, but the pain is simply a symptom of damage. Let me show you what I mean here, and I'll, I'll explain why we're not thinking this way, and then I'm going to show you a verse. I want you to talk with each other, just two or three close together, and name as fast as you can as many parts of the body as you can think of. Not hard, just inward, outward, just name as many parts of the body as you can. Go ahead and do it. Okay, you can stop there, because you can do it for a long time. You don't have to be a biologist. You don't have to be in medicine. Even if you just name the external parts, that'll keep you busy for a long time. But you know, when you cut open the body and see why the human body can do all this stuff, why the dancers can do all why we can speak, why we can see, why we can hear, why we can taste, why we can 
interact with this world physically with these physical bodies, what you find is you cut open the body and it's not filled with chocolate pudding. It's got all this internal structure, right? It's got a skeletal system, not just bones, but a skeletal system. It doesn't just have nerves, but it has a nervous system. It doesn't just have muscles, it has a muscle system. It has a digestive system. It has a cardiovascular system. It has a, uh, your, you know what your biggest organ in your body is? Your skin. I mean, that is an amazing organ. And, and organs are made out of tissues, and tissues are made out of cells, and cells are made out of organelles, which are the, the scientific word for the organs inside of cells, but they don't have organs, they have organelles, which are, which are made up of molecules, and molecules are made up of atoms, and atoms are made up of subatomic particles, and it just keeps getting smaller, smaller, smaller. You know what we learn about God when you look at science, especially biology, but physics anywhere? Man, is he organized. Isn't he? He is so incredibly detailed. Matter of fact, I call God the greatest engineer we will ever know. He's not a magician. I say that and emphasize that. I want you to hear it because I think most Christians and most religions treat their gods as if they are magicians. Lord, I'm not going to work, but please give me food to eat. I'm not going to exercise or eat right, but make me healthy. God would go, uh, I don't think you're living in the right world. Aren't you paying attention? This all has design. Every piece is connected. Um, If you want to be healthy, then you need to eat right and exercise and get enough sleep and drink water, and, and then you're more likely to be healthy. And if you want to have money and pay your bills, then you need to get a job and you need to be responsible and be faithful and do what's right. And, and if you want to have good relationships, then you need to be loving. Now, you can't force the other person to love you, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, you would be, be at peace and be loving. So there is this incredible structure in the physical world, including the human body, that makes it work. I mean, I could not do this without muscles and nerves and bones and, and the ability to balance my body and even stand up. You realize how few animals can stand on two feet. And this is a miracle itself. Talking. Do you realize human beings invent their own languages? If you go listen to a red-winged blackbird, you know every red-winged blackbird sounds exactly the same? But human beings, we invent our own languages. And not just with sounds, we invent it with signs, with computer codes, with all kinds of things. It's, it's utterly amazing. Now, I want, I want to give you another exercise here in just a minute. I want to talk about the human soul. Because the human soul is talked about a lot in the Bible. So is the body. But the human soul is a part of who we are as human beings, which is unique. You go back to the Genesis story when God made the first man. You know, when he made all the animals, he spoke them into existence. Remember, I'm a biologist. I can still say that. But when he made Adam, he did get down apparently on his hands and knees and grab some clay and form a body. But then the writers say, Moses wrote, God told Moses, 
He actually, God touched his lips to the face of Adam and breathed something into him, and it says, and Adam became a living soul. Something unique in the So we're part of the animal kingdom, but also very separate and different from the animal kingdom. We, we think, dogs think, but we think differently than dogs do. Dogs make choices, but we make moral choices. Now, dogs don't get up in the morning and say, what should I wear? I wonder what the other dogs will think of me if I have one blue sock and one brown sock on. I mean, we, we make choices about things the rest of the animal world never thinks about. And we feel things. I mean, we can see fear in other animals, but do dogs ever feel guilty? Well, actually, when I say that, I think my cats feel guilty. Because they know they're not supposed to be on the kitchen table. When I walk in the room and they jump off before I say something, they know they're in trouble. But they don't feel guilty like human beings do. We feel things differently. And maybe what's most important about being a soul is it's who we are as persons in the image of God. And that being in the image of God as persons is what makes it possible for us to have loving relationships with other persons. Follow that? When the Bible talks about your soul and you being a person, that's who you are. You have a body. You have a spirit. You are a living soul. You are a person. And because you are a person, you can have a relationship, a loving relationship with another person. By the way, God is three persons in one being. So when God is all by himself, he's not alone. God actually has three loving relationships when he's all by himself. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son. They're having a party all by himself, which might explain then when God made human beings as one person in one being instead of three persons in one being. He looked at Adam before sin, before Eve, but before sin, which means Adam had a perfect relationship with God. There was no sin or death in the world. And God had been saying about everything he made, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. Uh, this is not good. And what was not good? That the man was alone. Perfect relationship with God. No one like himself to have a loving relationship. I think that's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. To understand the makeup of every human being is to be in loving relationship. And sin destroys loving relationships because sin is the opposite of love. Sin is about self and me and mine and getting my way. Love is about us and you and working together and winning together. And if necessary that one of us has to lose, I will lose so you can win. Greater love has no man than this than one lay down his life for his friends. Not just his friends. As Paul says by the Spirit in Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for, for us in this. While we were yet sinners. And before that he says, ungodly, helpless sinners, and then says, enemies of God. 
four things. Ungodly sinners who made themselves enemies of God and were helpless to do anything about it. God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die and pay the penalty for our sin. So our soul, I'm going to suggest to you, I'd like you to think about this. Our soul is more important than our body. Again, you are a soul, but you have a body. The body is going to be thrown away and you're going to get a new body in the resurrection. Your soul doesn't get thrown away. Your soul gets transformed into the image of Christ. Your soul is not only more important, I believe it is more miraculously dynamic than the human body is. For all that the human body can do, the human soul can do more. Now let's think about this again. When you cut open the human body, what do you see? All these pieces that make it so the body can do what it does. Now I want you to talk with each other for a minute and start naming all the pieces of the human soul. Go ahead. Yes, I know it's a trick question. You can't, can you? Why can't you name a single piece of the human soul? Why can't you name a single piece of the human soul? I'm not talking about the brain. I'm not talking about the central nervous system. I'm talking about the soul, this thing that God breathed into Adam and gave to each human being. Why can't we name a single piece? What does the soul even look like? Can't, because we can't see it. And like, now watch this. And like children, because we can't see it, we think it's made of chocolate pudding. We think it has no moving parts. We think it's some glowing air that floats around, around you know, in our head or something. As a biologist, I would say, look at the whole created world. The more dynamic something is, the more complicated its structure is. Most of science is at the level where things are so big and so far away or so small, they're trying to figure out the structure of things we can't see. Think of the human soul, more dynamic than the human body. I want to suggest to you it has more pieces than the human body does. The soul could not do what it does, think and identify truth, choose and make moral choices, feel and be a person able to have relationship with other persons unless it had some parts. And a lot more than two or three parts. The human body has billions of parts. The human soul must have, I don't know, trillions? And it has systems connected to the other systems. And it has soul organs. And it has tissue. And it functions well when all the whole of the soul functions well when every part is well. How do you know when something's broken? It hurts, but the real key is, how do you know when a toaster's broken? Because the toaster doesn't say I'm broken, it hurts. How do you know when a toaster's broken? When it doesn't do the job it was designed to do. When it doesn't work, work according to the original design. Are there any human beings, work, any Christians even, working perfectly according to God's original design? Which means we must all be broken. How did we get broken? I want to suggest to you that this thing that God calls sin 
whether it's our sin against God or other people's sin against us or our sins against other people, every sin is to the human soul like what a knife is to the human body. Now, we know how it works. We can see it, a knife in the human body. You stab someone with a knife, we know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to feel pain, and their freedom is going to be limited depending on where they get stabbed, how often they get stabbed, how deeply they get stabbed, how big the knife is. All of those things come into play. You know, if you get someone shoves an arm into your shoulder, yeah, it's going to sting. You pull it out, and it's okay. You know, in 24 hours, you're going to be fine, unless it's infected and you've got more damage. Someone stabs you with a steak knife in the arm. You're likely to be going to the hospital, especially if it hits an artery, especially if the knife is big, especially if it's repeated stabbings. You know, God talks about sin as if it were a knife. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10. And you probably know this verse. I'm going to go ahead and read it, though. And I'll I'll start it, and I'll let you finish it if you know it. The thief does not come except to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Three things. New American Standard says it this way. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We ought to know what this thief is, don't you think? Now, many people, and it may be taught here, and I'm not challenging it really if it is, consider that because Jesus parallels himself to the thief, because the rest of the verse is where Jesus says, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, and Jesus is a person, therefore the thief is a person, and a thief is a person. So the thief in this verse might be Satan. And if it is, it's a perfectly legitimate truth because the rest of the Bible would confirm that Satan can only do three things in your life. Steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to do it to your body. He's going to do it to your relationships. He's going to do it to your soul. He's going to do it to your home. He's going to do it to the church. He's going to do it to the community. He's going to do it to the environment. Satan can only has one agenda. Steal, kill, destroy. Oh, he'll paint it up and make it look good so you think, "Eh, maybe disobeying God is really going to be to my benefit. Jesus says, don't be an idiot. There's only three things he's after. Stealing, killing, and destroying. It may feel good for a moment. You will be the loser in the end. Because it's like a knife. He is like a knife. However, I don't believe Satan is his primary meaning here because he's comparing himself and the giving of life to people. So what has really taken our life away that we need a Savior such as Jesus to repair the problem? The Bible says the real problem, as big a character as as Satan is in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the bigger problem in the Bible is what? It's sin. Matter of fact, Satan wouldn't be Satan if it weren't for. God didn't create Satan as a, as a violent, cruel, mean demon. He was created as an angel, a wonderful, beautiful, innocent, good being who then sinned, and because sin can only do three things, steal, kill, and destroy, what happened to Satan or to Lucifer? He became different. 
His soul was compromised. He could no longer see truth. He could not choose love. He feels pretty bad. All those pictures about Satan being this happy, jolly guy who runs hell, that's not the biblical Satan. He's terrified. He's guilty. He's shamed. He's, he, is, he knows he's in trouble. Revelation says he knows his time is short. He's panicking. He's defeated already at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His days are numbered. He knows the lake of fire is where he's going. Sin is that destructive that it can take a cherub of God and turn it into the most violent creature in the universe. What, could, what that might that sin do to you? Every time you have sinned, it is as if you took a knife and stabbed yourself. And you would feel the pain and your freedom would be limited because a knife in the arm is going to make it so you can't lift your arm up even if you take the knife out. Every time someone has sinned against you, they have knifed you. Every time you've sinned against someone else, you sinned against God, you knifed yourself, and you knifed them. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said sin can only do three things. Steal, rob you of something good and important, kill, take away your life, destroy, break every good thing that God has put into your Does that make sense? How do you know when something's broken? It doesn't work right. Can you look in your soul? Can you look at your life, your pattern, your behavior, your thought life, your choices, and go, yeah, the good that I wish I don't always do, but I often do the bad thing I don't want to do, and the temptation that I'd like to overcome still gets the better of me? And that thing that happened to me 20, 30, 40 years ago, I still feel it as if it happened yesterday. You know, that was one of the shocking things for me as a man, as a pastor, who didn't understand the emotional world, would listen to people tell me the horror stories of their childhood and break down and cry in front of me over events that were 30 or 40 years old. I know you women are thinking, so that, that's normal, that's the way it's supposed to be. But for a man who's an engineer who shut down all of his emotions, I'm going... How in the world does that happen? How does a 40-year-old event feel like it happened yesterday? Doesn't time heal all wounds? You know, that's a lie out of the pit of hell, by the way. Time heals all wounds is not a truth. It's a lie. It's not even true physically, and I can prove it right now running a little experiment in your head because you don't really want to run this experiment in real life anyway. We'll take a dead corpse. Well, all corpses are dead, but we'll take a dead corpse, human body, We'll take a living body volunteer. We'll get a doctor come in with sterilized surgical equipment, scalpel, and make a little half-inch cut in the arm of the dead body and the living body in the same place to the same depth. Put antiseptic on it, bandage them up, and start the clock to see which, what happens. Because time heals all wounds. Well, you all know what happens. You come back in two weeks, one of those wounds is healed. One of them is not. The living body, the wound is healed. The dead body, not only is the wound not healed, but the whole body is still undergoing decay. 
which means time heals nothing. Listen, healing may take time, but time doesn't cause the healing. The difference between these two bodies is the difference that causes healing. One body has something the other body does not. What does this body have? Life. Life causes healing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life causes healing. Becoming a Christian is coming into a relationship with not just the giver of life, the God who is life, who is able to fix broken things, resurrect the dead, and restore what sin has stolen. Amen? That's really good news. Can I say that again? The gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, because the rest of that verse, Jesus says again, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And then what I consider to be the single most important word in all the Bible, three little letters, but... The Bible is always talking this way. Here's the bad news, and it's really, really bad. But here's the good news, and it's always about Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and there's nothing you can do to stop that reality. But Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, and if you have life, included in all that life means, the relationship, restoration, reconciliation with God, with others, everything. Included in that is God saying, what sin has stolen, I can replace. What sin has killed, I can resurrect. What sin has damaged and broken, I can heal. Amen? Amen. Now the question is, though, how does that healing process take place? How do we apply it? How do we involve ourselves in it? How does it happen? Because it's clear, it's very clear, I think you'll all agree, that just because someone becomes a Christian, they don't get instantly healed in their soul, do they? Someone can be born again and very broken in their soul. Someone can be spirit-filled, spirit-baptized, and be very broken and dysfunction in their soul. They can be very gifted, very charismatic, and very broken in their soul. They can be biblically educated. They can memorize the whole Bible and still be broken in their soul. Matter of fact, I think one of the greatest errors in the Western church today is that we in the West, including uh, Western Europe, tend to think that if we just have enough of the right information all of our problems will go away. We'll even quote a verse where Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you shall know, you'll be truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now that is true, but we again better understand all that what Jesus means, means there. It's not just information management. It's knowing the truth like you're having intercourse with it. Personal intimate experience so that you become a part of the truth and the truth becomes a part of you. Oh, remember the two shall become... One, where the truth becomes one with you and you become one with the truth, something's going to happen. And the truth is not an abstract thing. It's truth about specific things, about God, about life, about sin, about the cross, about the resurrection, about the future. Probably very, a lot of those 65 first principles that we talk about at the house. You've got to know these things. And a big part of that is truth about forgiveness. 
Because the way God talks about forgiveness in both the Old and the New Testament, it seems to me what he's saying is, and I'll we'll look at some verses in just a moment here, when you practice forgiveness, God is saying, I can heal you. But when you don't practice forgiveness, I can't heal you. I want to heal you. I have the power to heal you. But if you don't forgive, I can't. You know, we pray that every time when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, that's the only line in the prayer Jesus comments on. And he says, for if you forgive others their transgressions against you, my heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive the people who sin against you, my heavenly Father won't forgive you. He can't. The message of the Bible is practicing forgiveness. I'm going to introduce that term here. Practicing forgiveness is how God heals the human soul and how he restores broken relationships, first with our relationship with him, and then our relationships with each other. But to restore broken relationships, both parties have to practice forgiveness. Where there is no forgiveness, there's no healing. Where there's no healing, there isn't life. Death still reigns. And the soul is still broken, which means it's not thinking clearly, not going to be able to make the right choices every time, not going to feel good, and their personality has been corrupted and damaged and is not free to have the loving relationship that God designed it to have. Where there is forgiveness, there's healing in life. Where there is no forgiveness, it can't happen. This is why, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18... Jesus answered the famous question that, that uh, Peter asked him. You all know the question, right? Let's give a little background to this. Matthew 18. Jesus, you probably know, maybe not, was what we'd call an itinerant preacher. I'm an itinerant preacher. An itinerant preacher is someone who goes to various towns and groups and audiences and preaches but we're basically preaching the same message over and over again. Now, if you're pastoring the same church for 20 years, you can't do that, right? You've got to be listening, and God's going to say some new things. Sometimes my pastor friends say, you've been doing this for 15 years, Steve. Are you getting tired of preaching basically the same messages? All? I said, no, because this message is really important and powerful, and it's not being clearly preached. So it's exciting, and it's fun. But it is the same message. Jesus preached the same message. There was no internet. I know young people can't imagine that. There was no phone. There was no TV. There was no radio. Jesus didn't even write a book. So he'd go to one town and preach the Sermon on the Mount. He'd go to another town and preach what? The Sermon on the Mount. He'd go to another town and preach what? The Sermon on the Mount. And that's, by the way, some discrepancies are in different Gospels of what Jesus said in different stories because he was preaching the same thing over and over again, but he's not a machine. He didn't say it exactly the same. Depending on the audience, even my forgiveness seminars aren't the same. I go to different churches. I don't know exactly how God's going to lay it out because it's a different group of people. So Peter and the disciples following Jesus from town to town are hearing what? The same thing over 
and over and over again. And they're hearing Jesus talk a lot about forgiveness and loving our enemies. And, and you need to know this about real forgiveness. Whatever real forgiveness is, it's not human. It doesn't come from human beings. We did not invent forgiveness. God did not one day a long time ago look down from heaven watching some children fighting on the playground and one of them say, hey, we've got to stop hitting each other and one of us, I, I, we need to practice forgiveness. You know, that's funny because we know that never happens. Because human beings never practice forgiveness automatically. We have to learn what it is and we have to enter into it having been taught about it. God didn't look at human beings practicing forgiveness and go, hey, that's pretty cool. That would solve a lot of problems. What are you guys doing? That? Oh, we call it forgiveness? Really? Show me how you do that, because I'd like to do that. You know, that's a funny story, because you know that's not how it happened. God invents forgiveness. God establishes forgiveness. God practices forgiveness. And then he tells us to receive it, and then to copy him and do the same thing with each other. Amen? No human being practices forgiveness, which means every human being is against it. I think it was Mark Twain who said, everybody loves the concept of forgiveness until they have someone they need to forgive. And then it all goes out the window. Everybody has a line somewhere, even us Christians. We learn about our forgiveness. We learn about the cross. I don't know if you know this, but I heard maybe there's some new Christians even in the room. I need to encourage you. This is normal. You're going to have to go through this. Most of us will believe at the beginning, yeah, Jesus died for most of my sins, but there's one, two, or three really bad ones that I don't think God should forgive me for. And you'll continue to condemn yourself for those until you believe that Jesus died for those two and you're forgiven for those two. You know, that's not right. No, it is right. And tomorrow night I'm going to explain to you why forgiveness is right and how God makes it right. The righteousness of God revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Why it's good and right and proper for God to forgive us of any and every sin, including Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, not everyone knows Jeffrey Dahmer. Who else should we talk about? How about every soldier in the ISIS army? How about Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin? Mao Zedong? How about all the white Americans in this country? How about the pedophile, the prostitute, the drug addict? As Jesus teaches, I'll show you tomorrow night, one of his verses he says, when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. Any person, any sin. But innately, none of us like that because our hearts cry out for justice and we think not everyone should be forgiven. Not every sin is forgivable. So Peter, hearing Jesus preach on forgiveness in all these towns, he's really squirming because this is real life. He's having problems with some people. And so in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, I read it that way kind of impassionately because that's often how we read the Bible. No heart, no, you know, we just have facts here. It's kind of like uh, Dragnet, Joe Friday, just, you know, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to, you know, you really got to put yourself in Peter's shoes. 
Somebody was sinning against him. Right? On these days. You might think maybe it's a family member. And I think, well, it could be a family member. More likely it was one of the other disciples. Because the disciples that Jesus called everyone to follow him, he called a special few to follow him closely. And the guys he picked to follow him closely, they didn't like each other. I mean, take the two extremes. One of them was Matthew, who writes this gospel, who was a tax collector, who had sided with Rome, who was oppressing and occupying all of Israel. He was considered by a good Jew to be a traitor and someone who ought to die. Now, one of the other disciples Jesus picked is Judas, uh, no, Simon the Zealot. Now, what is the other word for zealot? You might not know this. I think it was zealot. He was very enthusiastic. How about Simon the terrorist? That's what it really means. He was so angry at the Roman nation and had so much zeal for his country and his people and his God, he would have slit Matthew's throat if he could get away with it. And they're both following Jesus. <laughs> a lot of these guys didn't get along with each other. They, some were educated, some were not. Some were fishermen, blue-collar workers. Some had better jobs. Um, who knows? We don't know all the details, but you have to assume this is not a homogeneous group. And so Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I mean, I'm going to say it the way I think Jesus or Peter really said it. He comes up to Jesus and nobody's listening. I mean, he's going to whine. He's going to whine with anger and go, Okay, Lord, I hear you talking about forgiveness everywhere we go, and honestly, I don't like it because it doesn't seem right to me that I should forgive. In fact, how many times, actually, let's get real here, Jesus. How many times, actually, I need a number, because I only want to do it the, the minimum number of times. I don't want to do it at all, but if you say seven, I'll do seven. Now, the reason why he said seven is because we know from historical records that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were teaching the Jewish people, you only needed to forgive the same person for the same sin. There's some discrepancy three or four times. Let's just say four. So the Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, are teaching the people, someone sins against you, Lonnie sins against me once, I need to forgive him to be a good Jewish man. Does the same thing again, I need to forgive him a second time. Third time, forgive him. Fourth time, forgive him. To be a good Jewish man and right standing with God. But the fifth time, he does it? I can what? What do you feel? What should, what should I finish? I can what? I can retaliate. I can let him have it. I can get even. Now listen, and be a good Jewish man in right standing with God. That's what Peter was taught. That's what all the disciples were taught. Now, Jesus also, or Peter also heard Jesus keep teaching this in towns. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to experience the kingdom of heaven. So Peter's thinking about his anger towards this guy and all the sin and the injustice and his heart's cry for justice, and he wants to let this guy have it. He wants to get even, but Jesus says he can't. He has to forgive, and to be a good Jewish man, a follower of Jesus, he has to forgive, and he knows it's going to be more than four because the righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's thinking before he comes to Jesus, okay, it's going to be more than four. 
is it five? Is Jesus going to say I can stop at five? Oh, probably not. That's only one more. How about six? Uh, well, seven. That's that good Jewish holistic number. We'll go to seven. I'll ask him seven. Surely he won't say I have to forgive a pedophile more than seven times. And Jesus says, oh, Peter. Now, I'm going to flesh out Jesus' answer a little, too. Because you need to understand Peter is not asking Jesus how to forgive. He's asking why I have to do it. That's so important in understanding this parable. Why do I have to do it? You know, there are a lot of Christians that are living right where Peter is. I'm a good Christian. I want to be a good godly man or woman. I want to follow Christ. I'm told that I have to forgive my abusive father or my neglectful mother or my unfaithful spouse. So I need to practice forgiveness being right, because I don't want to lose my salvation, because, you know, I've heard pastors say that if you don't forgive the person who sins against you, God who can't forgive you will take away your salvation. You're going to go to hell if you don't forgive. <coughs> Have you ever heard that? I'm not saying he preaches. I don't, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that on the radio. Matter of fact, I heard a pastor in Oakland on the radio talk about you become a Christian and you get forgiven by believing in Jesus. God forgives you all your sins, and by the end of the sermon, 20 minutes later, he's saying, but if you don't forgive other people, you're going to lose your salvation. I'm going, wow, that's an interesting message. Not biblical, but okay. Very destructive and deadly. And I can hear then Jesus answering Peter this way. Peter, I can tell by the nature of your question you still don't understand why you need to forgive this person. You're thinking of this as a religious duty, Peter. You're thinking there's a minimum number that you have to reach that God will approve of, and then after that you don't have to forgive. You can get even and let this person have it. But I don't tell you seven times. I tell you 70 times seven, which is 490. But he didn't mean 490, and on the 491st time, then you can stop and let him have it. Because then he tells a parable about a very, very wealthy king who gave a tremendous amount of money, 10,000 talents. A talent is a year's worth of money. So it's 10,000 years' worth of money, he gives, which means this is a servant. He's not a broom pusher. This is a money investor. This is the vice president of a huge company. And he's given 10,000 years of money to do what with? To invest, make a profit, keep a portion for himself, but give the principal and profit back to the king. Well, the dot-bomb, dot-com bubble burst or the real estate market crashed or something, but this guy lost a lot of the principal. doesn't say he lost it all, but he couldn't pay it all back. And in, in, in the Roman law at that time, that everyone was living by, if you couldn't pay back what you owed, you could actually be thrown into a debtor's prison, which made it even harder to pay it back. It means your family had to pay off your debt. And the man begged for more time. Because he figured, if I just, kind of like a gambler, well, investing is sometimes like gambling, right? Because there's no guarantee it's going to work out. Just give me more time and I'll pay it all back to you. And Jesus said, and the king moved with compassion, looked at this man and said, tell you what, instead of that, I'm just going to cancel the debt. I'm going to forgive the debt. Now, tomorrow I'm going to explain why forgiveness is used in the money world and in the sin world. This is a parallel. 
He canceled the whole debt. Then Jesus said, this forgiven man went out and found someone who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is one day's wage. A hundred denarii is a hundred days' wages. That's a lot of money. That's about, if you take out weekends, working five days a week, we're talking about four or five months' worth of money. I've heard pastors, again, on the radio, on TV. As a matter of fact, a pastor friend of mine said $8.57. And I said, really? Doug, what are you thinking? Where are you pulling $8.57 out of 100 Because he had been conditioned to believe we forgive other people because what they do to us is insignificant compared to what we do to God. Well, in a sense, it is. But a hundred denarii is not insignificant. And Jesus would not have used a hundred denarii if he said, you forgive other people because what they do to you is no big deal. Just grit your teeth and get through it. Just, how about this phrase? Just let it go and move on. God doesn't even do that. We Christians use that phrase. It's not in the Bible. Letting it go and moving on. God can't even do it. hundred days wages. And the man begged for more time, just like the, the money manager did. But in anger, he took this second servant and threw him into a debtor's prison. The news got back to the king, and the king was furious. Called the money manager back and said, you wicked servant, I canceled and forgave all that debt because you asked me. And you couldn't have the same kind of compassion on someone else and forgive them? And then Jesus says this, listen carefully. And the king moved with anger, handed him over to, you know the word? Tormentors, or the other word is torturers. That's not a debtor's prison. They didn't torture people in a debtor's prison. He's handed over to torturers. Now, torturers also work in prisons. They don't make house calls. Because if you had an appointment with your torturer tomorrow at 10 o'clock at your house, where would you be tomorrow at 10 o'clock? Anywhere but your house. So they're in prison. Now, watch this. This is a picture, because Jesus then sums it up and says, so my heavenly Father will do to you if, you if you do not forgive your brother or sister or mother or father or grandparents or ex-spouse or your children or your co-worker or the guy who raped you on the date or your whole high school class or even Adam and Eve going all the way back to their sin. So will my heavenly Father have to do to you if you don't forgive from your heart. See, Peter was just going to do forgiveness faking it. I'll fake it seven times. That's why Jesus said, from your Peter, um, Paul talks about forgiving from the heart this way in Ephesians. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I want to suggest to you that while the world talks about anger management and the church has sucked that in and is talking about anger management, there's no anger management in the Bible. Forgiveness doesn't manage anger. It replaces anger. The Bible talks about anger eradication, anger replacement, so that we actually love the people who sin against us. And I know right away you're thinking of some people who have sinned against you going, well, I don't want to love the people who sinned against me. I know because you haven't forgiven them yet. You don't forgive them because you love them. You discover you love them with God's love after you forgive them. You have to do the work of forgiveness and practice it first. Get healed, and then God's love can flow through you. 
So torturers worked in prison. Now this is a picture. It's an analogy. God does not, I don't believe God creates a prison and throw unforgiving people, including Christians, into it. I don't even believe that he hands them over to some torturers or tormentors. I believe what Jesus is simply describing is an injury. Because if I stab you in the leg, what are you going to feel? And if you're handed over to torturers, what are you going to feel? Pain. And if you're thrown into a prison, your freedom is going to be limited. And if you're stabbed in the leg, you ain't going to walk for several days. Your freedom is limited. I think Jesus was simply saying, Peter, you don't understand the destructive power of sin. That sin is to the human soul like what a knife is to the body. And when someone sins against you, he's knifed your soul. And all those parts you can't see, you're bleeding. You've got organ damage. You can't think properly. You're not going to see truth clearly. You're going to be more susceptible to lies. You're going to fall to temptations that you would otherwise resist because your faculty of choice has been compromised. You've got broken bones. Your digestive system isn't working right. And you feel pretty bad. And you're having a hard time in relationships. You have an injury, Peter. And my Father can't heal you unless you forgive. But if you and when you do forgive, the good news is where there is real forgiveness, there is real life. And where there is life, There's healing. And in the Western church, we are actually trying to teach broken people into health, which in the physical world can't be done. I'll wrap it up with this picture. I have a son-in-law. My oldest daughter is married, who I said looked like the lady singing at the end, is married to a man. They're both about the same age, Spencer and Nicole. They're both 30 years old. 10 years ago, 11 years ago, he was, they were on a missions trip, not married, on a missions trip with their church in Belize. And on a day off, he dove off of a bridge into a river and broke his leg and almost died. He is now paralyzed from the elbows down and from the chest down because he has an injury. His freedom is limited. He actually still, he was in excruciating pain, you can imagine, when his neck broke. But you know, people with paralysis often feel phantom pain. The only thing he feels in his paralyzed body is pain. The funny thing is, I could take a knife and drive it into his thigh, and he would feel nothing because he's injured. He used to be a great soccer player, big guy. I've often thought, I wonder if I went to the San Jose Earthquakes, which is our Bay Area soccer, professional soccer team, and I told them about Spencer's story and how much he loves soccer, if they would let him come to some games. And then I started fantasizing and said, what if they not only let him come to the home games, but they let him travel with the team and go to the away games? What if they let him go to the practices? What if they let him go to the coaches? What if he became close friends with professional soccer players and learn from professional coaches how to play soccer. Let me ask you this question. Do you think after one year of spending that kind of time with the San Jose Earthquakes that he could play soccer any better today then than he does today? We all know, no. He would play soccer, no, absolutely no. Not one tiny bit better. Why? Because the problem is not what he knows or doesn't know about soccer. 
problem is he has a broken neck. What's the solution for a broken neck? Education? No. It's healing. Every human being is a crippled, damaged, broken person. Every, because every human being has sinned. Every human being has been sinned against. Amen? So we've all been knifed. We're all bleeding. We all have internal damage. And it's affecting how we think, what we choose, how we live every moment of every day. Even if you're a Christian. And the Holy Spirit can override that damage in a moment to do a miracle. But God has no intention of leaving us broken. He wants to heal us. We even sang it. He wants to heal us. But how is that healing going to happen? Jesus said it. If you don't practice forgiveness, my Father can't heal you. Practice for real forgiveness. Then my Father can heal you. And your life will change in ways you can't even imagine. Tomorrow I'll describe what forgiveness is, real biblical forgiveness is. And the next night we'll talk about how to do it. Amen? Shall we pray? Oh yes, I need to hand those out. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for tonight and for this wonderful gift of forgiveness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, for making forgiveness possible through your cross, through the resurrection. Thank you that that forgiveness can be real and powerful and mighty in our lives every moment of every day. Pray that you would help each of us to develop a lifestyle of your forgiveness so that you can constantly be healing us, not only of long time past sins, but of the sins that are happening every day we can quickly let you heal us and find our freedom and health and joy in you. Amen. I did forget to mention, go ahead, you can pass these out. I want to give you a worksheet. Either you can do this tonight or sometime tomorrow before tomorrow night. Since practicing real forgiveness is foreign to every human being and every human, no human being does it naturally, that means when you were a child and people were sinning against you, Instead of practicing forgiveness, you had to do something else with those feelings. The pain, the anger, the frustration, the guilt, the depression. You had to do something with the damage. The damage of sin is real. The emotion of that damage is real. Children have to do something with it. You can't pretend it isn't there. No child can do that. No adult can do that. So when you were a child, instead of practicing forgiveness, you started doing something else. And I've listed on here 16 substitutes for forgiveness. You can ignore sin, hide from sin, run away from sin, blame the wrong person, justify it, excuse it. Look, in, look at those 16. You've done all 16. People say, well, I've done all these. Yeah, I know, you've done all of them. You may even do all of them a little bit today. However, by the time you were probably five... You've figured out one, two, or three of these that worked best for you. And you've become such an expert at those one, two, or three substitutes for forgiveness, you're not even aware of doing them when it happens. They happen automatically. They're actually a part of your personality now. Jesus wants to pull that out. But you need to know what your substitute is. Your, listen, your greatest enemy to practicing real forgiveness is yourself. It's your coping mechanism. 
Your coping mechanism is like a living animal that does not want to die. You're not going to be able to kill it and let the Holy Spirit get rid of it unless you identify it first. You need to pray and find out, over the course of my life, what have I normally, when, when I become aware that I've sinned against God, instead of receiving forgiveness, what am I doing instead? When someone sins against me and I become aware of it, what am I doing with that if I'm not bringing it to the cross and practicing forgiveness? And when I sin against another human being and they need me to go and take responsibility for my sin and confess my sin and ask them to forgive me, I'm not doing that. What am I doing instead? You are doing something. That something is your biggest enemy tonight. It'll be your biggest enemy all all year, the rest of your life, unless you find out what it is and pray in a way where you shoot it in the head By the way, it will come back as a zombie. And you're going to have to keep shooting it with those prayers and start to learn to practice real forgiveness because the only solution to getting rid of the wrong way to deal with sin is dealing with it in the right way. And that's through God's forgiveness. So work on this, pray about that. You're not going to share it with anyone else. Just It's for you and God. And there's directions on there for you. Thank you. Thanks. Father, we thank you. When uh, Steve was sharing essentially how important this was and whether he'd be willing to just share it with his body or how important is it to share with others, <clears throat> he said everybody needs to hear this. And that's essentially what released him. It was his heart desire that not one would go without having the opportunity to hear the, the way <clears throat> the how-tos. Well, it was always one. You know, it's one thing to hear about your problem, identify the problem, but what do you do with it? And this is a hands-on. It's something that's tangible. And I love the fact that God can present things in such a, um, a simple way, because I'm pretty simple-minded. But to be able to penetrate all of the, you know, for us, 47 years of religious training, spiritual training, it just clutters the simple gospel. Forgive. And if you've looked at any kids that have been raised in the church, right? Three, four, five, six years old, seven years old, they know the ways of the church. They know what to get away with and how to get away with it. Haven't we all? And if there's been an injustice and God knows exactly how to established truth for 2,000, well, let's say close to 2,000 years. These religious theories, you can call them Gospels of the Demons, however you want to identify them, have tricked us. We've been conditioned. You and I, and that goes back to 47 years of working, excuse me, being in the ministry and being exposed to what is truth, but there's always this admix. Now the Lord's really coming to us personally to be able to take ownership. And you have practical truth, present day practical truth according to the word, but how to apply it. I 
think we can all identify with our brokenness and how that has affected our character, but we've been so good at when Kathy went to see the doctor with at least 60 clots in her lungs. We understand why she looks so well. He says, well, it's amazing. She says, it's amazing what makeup can do to a corpse. That's what the church has done. We've known how to apply this, these cosmetics. Thank you, Steve. <clears throat> because it's not easy to stand and allow God to use truth, a, a two-edged sword, if you will. Because every time we stand up, we're, we're speaking to ourselves more than we are to you the very expressions of what we have as a family. And God, you know what? The Lord is so faithful to bring real, sincere, godly men and women in our lives that we might choose life and choose it abundantly. This is life. And I really, and I, and I thank the Father for the timing because as we see a shift or a change of what's taking in the in place in the family, <clears throat> and we have three individuals here, have given their life to protect your and my privileges, our safety, our freedom. And they took a lot of those stabs for us. Come on. And now it's an opportunity that we can really begin to say, you know, if one sins, we all sin. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. We have an opportunity to put our hands to truth and allow this work corporately this is such a wonderful open heaven for God to heal. Amen. So, and you can just sense this this is just the first of three. Amen. So take time out with that because this is for you. If he thinks he's if you think he's talking to you personally, the Lord is talking to you personally. Go on. Personally. Just just say it right now. This is for me. I'm broken, but I know the healer, and I know the way to receive that healing. Practicing forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, help our unbelief. You wouldn't introduce this if it wasn't something that you would make possible through our choice. As Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and had to make that choice, did the angels come to strengthen him, ministering angels, before he made the decision or after? Father, in a way that I don't have to fill this thing out and look at all of those things that I've displaced, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but let thine be done. And then who comes to strengthen us to walk it out? Lord, since ministering angels. So, please, and, and, and pray for Steve. Amen? There's, there are, yeah, just pray for him. And trust that God is going to keep him guarded in such a way that he can then continue to have the freedom to be able to express the truth that's in his life because it's a part of him. It isn't something he's rehearsed. Yes? Personal time? Personal time. If you would like... Starting tomorrow or should we do it on the on Thursday? Beautiful.
okay? Then really let the Holy Spirit be the minister to you tonight and tomorrow. Amen? And if you really believe that you have, yep, if you really feel that there's another step that's necessary, then then come to us and we'll, we'll, we'll bring that before the Lord for Steve. Amen? Let's just stand, yeah. Tomorrow's our family dinner, so make sure you